Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and it's Thursday. That means it's time for a brand new guest like we do every week, talking about their their life, their journey, and everything else about their love of martial arts. Um, my guest today was inducted into the SIG Sourcing Supernova Hall of Fame in 2018 for pioneering leadership and strategic sourcing, procurement, supplier innovation, and digital transformation. He has been studying and teaching martial arts since 1970, often putting what he learned into action while working stadium security part-time. A best-selling author, he's been interviewed by Fox, The Jim Bohannon Show, Computer World, Forbes, Art of Procurement, Police Magazine, and more. Please welcome to the show, Lawrence Kane. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. What we do with all my guests, we go back to the beginning. I want to know that first experience, that first spark. What led to that first interest of martial arts? Um, well, there was um, a bully named Tim. Really? Okay. <laughs> and... Uh, and my dad uh, decided, uh, you know what, uh, we're going to fix that. Hello, uh, Sensei Yamada, meet my son, turn him into a man. So wow. I, uh, I started at the age of six um, okay. and uh, started taking judo. As it turns out, uh, the guy I learned from was uh, the highest ranking black belt in the United States at the time. Wow. One of the pioneers of judo in the United States. He was on the 1950 something or other two, I think, whatever it was, Olympic team. You know, just amazing uh, martial artist and huge heart. I mean, he'd pile a bunch of us. Uh, I live in Seattle. Uh, I was uh, in the Seattle area as a kid. And uh, he'd pile a bunch of us into uh, the back of a 1973 Ford LTE station wagon, drive us up over the border to uh, Canada to go compete in Burnaby and get our butts kicked. And all around different tournaments, different places, uh, <laughs> Uh, just, you know, all on his own, you know, just because he loved the sport, wanted us to do it as well. And um, it was a great experience. And uh, at one point, uh, Tim and I got into the first fight I fought back in. It was more of a draw than anything else, but eventually became really good friends. So, you yeah, know, okay. it's like, well, okay. hmm, I don't need this anymore, but I actually kind of like it. So I'm going to I'm gonna keep doing it. So it's just, you know, typical thing you see is, uh, you know, little kid, uh, parents go, you know, drive you to a place and say, hey, put this thing on, go do that stuff. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, I'm kind of liking this. So it wasn't anything very exciting, but uh, but it did last. Um, I, I spent 48 years doing various martial arts of one sort or another. So how long did you stay with that first instructor? Uh, did four years, um, took a short break doing some other stuff and then came back and did another four years. So oh. eight overall. Wow. Uh, although I will say the challenge is he taught uh, very traditional Japanese style and I don't learn very well that way. So I ended up learning, for example, more from a week long uh, course with the Canadian Olympic judo coach. 
than I probably did in, in the first four years. Wow. So, um, you know, it was more kind of the show copy repeat as opposed to explain why. And the Canadian guy explained why. And so you probably uh, most people who, who've looked at judo will know, like, um, the, the basic foot sweep, the sotogari foot sweep throw. And I always did that like a tippy bird. And it never worked. It's like, like everybody's go-to thing when they first started with judo, and I could never get it to work. And it's because I was trying to do it in a straight line and not a circular movement. And uh, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but but the Canadian guy's like, no, 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 you're not doing it right. You, you need to do this, and here's why. And all of a sudden, it went from my worst movement to my best movement. In fact, I, uh, uh, I actually won a tournament like, I don't know, a month or two later using that movement, which I'd never tried in a tournament before because I'd always failed in, in class. Okay. So, you know, it's just one of those things where loved the guy, loved the sport, teaching style didn't really resonate and eventually I ended up moving to other things largely because of that, but not exclusively because of that. Okay. So what led to the competition? Is that something and I've talked to some guests in the past where their schools didn't really, they didn't really have a choice. They had to do competition. Was this something you, you wanted to do or were you kind of pushed into it at that young age? Uh, no, it's kind of pushed into it. It, it. You know, that's how you dance in judo is, is you compete. And so it, it really wasn't an option. As I got older, I had this weird upbringing. Um, I'm fairly old. <laughs> and uh, back in the day, you know, like bragging about yourself and, and that sort of thing was really frowned on. In fact, in judo, if you showed any expression, if you won, you would be disqualified. Wow. So like I actually beat a guy and uh, probably t- we, 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 this guy kind of the local area, we probably met like four times a year in different tournaments. I beat a guy like three to four times. The fourth one, he beat me and he did a little fist bump and got disqualified for it. Oh, wow. Um, You know, uh, it's like, wow. Now today, totally not like that, right? But back back then, you're supposed to be really stoic and Mm -hmm. like it's all about being a good sport and doing, you know, things correctly and all that. And so I kind of over-rotated on that a bit in terms of um, I always wanted to be kind of part of the team and do the right thing. I never really was horribly competitive until I got into high school football and somebody kind of took me aside and said, dude, if you're going to do this, you need to build a little arrogance here and you need to, to be, you know, doing this for you. Yes, you're part of a team, but if you don't have that competitive fire and you know, try to better yourself constantly, then you're actually both hurting you and the team. And it was, it was, it was kind of, it's a weird mindset thing. And uh, this guy's name is Joe, literally like a five minute conversation. I had this, it's like a switch went off in my brain. All of a sudden I became a competitive person. Very strange. You know, it was just one of those, like he said it exactly. I don't even remember what he said exactly, but I remember where it was, how we were talking, the beer we were drinking that we weren't old enough to drink. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it was just, it, it flipped the switch. And, and so I did a lot of uh, competition uh, after that, largely in um, these things like fencing, sword fighting uh, type stuff, some empty hand things, but mostly weapons forms, where it was very competitive, very, uh, think of like kendo, for those who are, you know, traditional mm-hmm. Japanese, but instead of a shinai, it's a solid rattan boken, and nice. you're hitting full power. Wow, that okay. sort of stuff. Yeah, and so I mean, yeah, it was. Uh, 
but it was a kind of a cool moment because I, I somehow had, you know, too many, too many manners. And the fact that I, I, you know, I could actually, I mean, we did judo boxing and wrestling in high school, which was something that I found kind of like today, you'd probably never do that. But, you know, I'd be out there in, in the judo part. I did really well because I had some skill in it. In the boxing, I was kind of a moving punching bag. And uh, in the wrestling, I was kind of in the middle. But as soon as that that switch flipped, I remember there was a guy, probably outweighed me by like 60 pounds. And he was one of the, uh, uh, I think he was a defensive back. I don't remember anymore. This has been a long time ago. <laughs> and um, we were going at it. And typically, the one of the PE instructors, if it got out of hand, would just kind of pull the people apart. And it was always, you know, pulling the other guy away from me, not not the other way around. And this and this one day, it just like I just went off and all of a sudden, like this, this P instructor we had, his, his name was uh, Darren Sype. He was the uh, Canadian or excuse me, the uh, U.S. Uh, Greco-Roman wrestling coach oh, wow. um, and was righted out to the point where he, he literally couldn't put his arms behind his head to do sit ups because Jeez. his biceps were too big. So he just grabs me with one hand, like yanks me up in the air and kind of hurls me halfway across the gym, which is what he normally do to the other guys. Mm -hmm. And I'm like looking around going, what? And he went, that was awesome. Don't do it again. (laughs) And I don't remember what I did actually, but whatever it was, apparently it wasn't legal. Nice. Now you did did judo through your teenage years. What was your next style then? What, uh, and when did that, how did that come? Uh, man, I've done all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done uh, judo, kabuto, karate, arnis, uh, aido, kendo, some Western European style uh, swordsmanship kind of stuff, um, and modern close quarter combatives, which is kind of anything out to about 200 meters. Just a massive eclectic variety of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'd stuck to any one thing, I'd I'd actually be really good at it. But... uh, (laughs) I've got a really well-rounded skill set and, and kind of a pretty holistic view of things, which is I found very, very valuable. For example, working stadium security, mm-hmm. where we didn't have arrest powers, but still getting fights constantly. Um, I probably had, well, I lost count at over th- at 300. So I, I don't even know how many I had. Wow. Did 26 years, probably averaged, um, you know, two to four game, 16 plus games a year. Plus we had some some pro uh, team games in there as well. And I, I did a few concerts, uh, which was a really bad idea. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> early days of early days of hip hop and all that. And, you know, pulling enough guns, knives and, you know, brass knuckles and stuff off folks that we actually ran out of places to put all of them. But, uh, you know, the things I found was what works in the dojo versus what works in reality and how things fit together and, 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 you know, the legal application versus, you know, what, what is, is what you're training to basically go to jail for and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'll just give you a really quick example. We had a guy when the national anthem plays, everybody you know stops, takes their hat off and, and waits till it's done. And then, you know, if you're, if the city isn't filled yet, there've been, you know, folks in Canada going in, so this guy's like shoves through while everybody's, you know, standing, uh, waiting for the national anthem to, to complete. And he almost knocked one of, I was a supervisor. Uh, I had uh, a bunch of captains and then a whole bunch of regular folks, security folks working for me. 
and he there was a young lady who worked for me and he just about knocked her down the stairs and these are cement stairs right i mean she'd actually fallen she would have been pretty seriously hurt so i grabbed him kind of pulled him back and like dude you gotta wait till the national anthem's over you know be respectful and she wasn't having any of it it's like no i gotta get to my seat and just like just tunnel vision focused on i've got to go to my seat and i don't care what anybody else does well in class one of the things we do and i don't remember the japanese name for the technique but it's where you um basically take your fingers and you kind of drive them over and behind somebody's collarbone while sticking your thumb in super sternal notch and and making a, a nice tight grip in there and it lights up the nerves like really well it's one of those things that i i never had failed demonstrating uh, here's an example of, of you know, how how uh, nerve techniques work. And I always said, because I was taught it, that it doesn't always work in real life. It doesn't work against people who are on certain drugs or, you know, under just complete lost at rage or or things like that. So you have certain mental conditions. But, you know, I've never seen it not work. And I could, like, make a dance with this thing because I hurt a lot. So I pushed the guy and he kept coming. And I tried that technique on him. And I mean, I got it. I mean, my my fingers were like under and behind his collarbone. And, you know, I mean, like you, you could see his, his skin. He's just wearing just a short sleeve shirt. You could see him. He's sunk in, you know, the first knuckle. He didn't notice I was even doing it. Oh, wow. Like nothing. No response. Nothing. And I'm like, wow, this is not good because this guy is going to hurt himself or somebody else. And he's going to cause a disruption during the, during a time when we're supposed to be respectful and not doing that. And so what I did was, cause I couldn't, I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't reason with him and pushing him back didn't work and trying to do that didn't work. So what I did is I stepped on the inside edge of his foot, right? Kind of above the uh, um, sort of where the, if your foot had knuckles, the, you know, the back one there, or the top one uh, by the arch. And I just drove my, uh, my, I was wearing boots. I just drove my boot into his foot there and he stopped and he kind of looked at me like you're on my foot. So at least he noticed that one. <laughs> and, and I said, dude, it's the national anthem. Be respectful. You can go as soon as it's done. And you got like 30 seconds left. And he just kind of had this weird look like, oh, okay, and stood there. But it, 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 he was so focused on, on you know, doing his thing. Now, you know, I could have reacted completely differently, right? I, I tried to talk to the guy. I tried to just, you know, light touch. I could have gone and, you know, teed off on him, right? Mm -hmm. That wouldn't accomplish the goal. I would have, I would have hurt him. Might have gotten fired. Might not have, depending on how well I could create a witness in, in, the, in the moment. But... It was a good example of if I did what I was taught to do in karate, it would have backfired, right? It, okay. it wouldn't have done anything. And so that's just, you know, one of, of a bazillion examples of, you know, kind of pressure testing things in reality versus what you, what you practice on. Because one of the things that a lot of martial artists seem to forget is that when you practice uh, largely with people of your same style, you know what's supposed to work and you know what's not supposed to work mm -hmm. and you are working towards the same uh, sort of set of techniques and, and strategic arrangement of those techniques. And so sometimes you're actually teaching yourself to do certain things as opposed to learning stuff that actually is, is functional. 
And, and again, I've heard that a lot. Chris teaches it. A lot of my instructors have taught that. But it, I actually got to experience it in, in a lot of ways like that event that I was mentioning at Stadium, okay. which made it really meaningful for me. Okay. So to back up a little bit, when did teaching become part of your martial arts journey? I know that's something you, you it said you've been teaching for quite a while. When, when did you decide to, what kind of led to, to starting to teach martial arts? So that was uh, kind of a variety of things. So the first teaching I did uh, started off, so I uh, spent the night playing poker at a friend's house in college and uh, had a bit too much to drink and decided that, you know, it's better to not drive home. And uh, the guy's name is Monty. And he happened to also be a FFL firearms dealer. So he had his own, uh, it was called Mountain Castle Arms. And so anyway, uh, get up in the morning, go to walk to my car, and there's police tape everywhere. And I can't actually get to my car. Well, long story short, the exact same apartment that Monty had, but one unit over, some guy had uh, broken in and killed the lady there with an axe. Wow. We never heard any of it. Never really realized anything happened and, until the morning. And that was kind of a, holy crap, um, this is not good. So I went back and said, uh, Monty, want to buy a gun? He went, no. What, what do you mean, no? Like somebody's murdered next door. I want to buy a gun, dude. And he handed me Masada Yub's, uh The Truth About Self-Protection, which is a great book. It's dated now, but it's still a great book. And um, and he said, read this, come back, and we'll talk. And there's a section in there that talks about whether or not you should, you should own a weapon. So I came back a week later, having read the thing. We talked about it and decided that, yes, in fact, I, I, I should, I could, I'm, I'm responsible enough to do it. And so he sold me my first gun. Well... I didn't want to own a gun without being responsible as a gun owner. And I spent a whole lot of money taking a whole lot of training to learn how to do that. Well, as a result of it, I got pretty good at it. I actually shot competitively for uh, about two and a half, almost three years. Oh, cool. And so I started teaching other people through that. And uh, I basically, basically was doing it so I could afford ammo. <laughs> I still didn't have very much money. Nice. So that's how I started. Uh, Starting teaching uh, traditional martial arts was actually uh, another one of those kind of you have to. So uh, as you become a, a brown belt in uh, Igo Juru, as an example, uh, you start teaching uh, as part of your ability. You know, when you teach somebody else, you have to really understand things well yourself. Yep. And it's kind of better for both people, right? The, the student learns and the teacher learns. Uh, and internalizes even better by explaining to other people. And so it's just kind of a natural evolution as I became a, you know, showed on and, and need on and whatnot to, to go in and teach with that. And part of it was, cause I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was in, in Chris's dojo and, you know, we used to be really good friends and, and that sort of thing. So that was kind of a natural extension, but I've taught some of the close quarter stuff, um, mostly handgun, uh, some knife things, uh, taught some of the, uh, you know, sword and shield, spear, some medieval weapons forms, stuff like that. And just, just kind of a variety of, uh, again, uh, I'm kind of eclectic. So okay. kind of a variety of different things. And mostly because of just really enjoy helping other people. I, I you know, in like real day job and all that, I mentor a lot of folks. You know, that's how I ended up in, in the Hall of Fame thing for my work is because 
you know, I helped a lot of people, did a lot of thought leadership, got involved, uh, spoke at a lot of conferences, mentored a ton of people, and they all said nice stuff about me. And some of them eventually nominated me. And, and, you know, the committee is like, oh, this guy's really advanced the art. And, you know, we gotta, we gotta do something about that. So it's just sort of a kind of natural pay it forward, uh, you know, thankfulness sort of thing. Okay. And I, I, and I enjoy it. So n- nothing, you know, no magic or, or anything like that, <laughs> but, but it, it was sort of a, sort of a natural. Okay. So how did the writing start for you? Was that something you had interest in at a young age or when did, when did you start writing and when did you write your first book? So I, in college, I, I went to a lot of science fiction and fantasy conferences and nice. I got to meet like some of my favorite authors. I mean, like, uh, I've got, I'm actually a character in a couple of different people's books, like, uh, uh Billy, Bill Dietz, William C. Dietz. Um, I actually met him dressed as one of his characters and eventually nice. I, as Lawrence Kane, became a character in a couple of his books. And in one of them, um, I got to beat the crap out of a clown, which was like awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so it is. So, you know, like, like I had big inroads to a lot of these folks. I knew Scott Card, um, Orson Scott Card, he's the guy who wrote Ender's Game. Mm-hmm. I knew Larry Nevin. I knew, uh, Roger Salazny. I mean, like any of the luminaries of, of science fiction and fantasy from like kind of the sixties to the nineties, I, I knew like most of them. Okay. And, you know, not necessarily close friends, but, you know, saw them repeatedly, things like that. T- did a bunch of writing workshops, really wanted to become a, you know, science fiction fantasy author, uh, did the writers of the future contest um, and got, I think one of my things got, through the second or third cut, whatever one it is where they actually give you written feedback. And basically they said, you suck. (laughs) So so I am not a good fiction writer. And I basically gave up. And uh, I should also add, I I had uh, uh, friends in the industry as well. So I mean, I I knew publishers and editors and, you know, like I had all the connections and everything. I just wasn't any good at it. So fast forward uh, a year before my black belt test, I'm, uh, I get my uh, uh, brown belt, test uh, level of brown belt, and Chris says, okay, you're going to test for black belt in a year for your showdown, and I want you to, to write a thesis and bring it to the test. I'm like, oh, wow, a year thesis? Okay. So fast forward, I show up at test day, and I've got a 140-page document, and he's like, what's that? <laughs> well, it's the thesis you asked for. Like I've been working on this for a year. And he's like, uh, I, no, no, I'm not like a research paper, like, you know, maybe eight or 10 pages. So here I am, I've taken my test and the whole time I think, God, I'm such an idiot. I just wasted a year. Well, you know, fast forward about a month, Chris finishes reading this thing goes, wow, this is, this is really, really good. You need to get this published. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? I don't know. Go figure it out. So I did. And uh, I ended up with a you know contract book comes out about a year and a half after, after I sent the contract. And six months later, whatever, uh, the publisher calls me up and says, uh, so what's your next book going to be about? I'm like, next book? I didn't even plan to write a first book. But it turns out I'm actually really good at nonfiction. I might not be a good fiction writer, but I'm very, very good. In fact, I've got all kinds of awards and medals and stuff mm-hmm. that says... I'm really good at this. So the second book, I actually didn't really feel qualified to write. I knew how to write, but I didn't feel qualified to. So I asked Chris if he would collaborate with me, and, and we wrote that one together. And uh, it's sort of gone from there. So I published 22 books. Uh, it's about one a year, maybe slightly more than that. And um, uh, just, you know, it, it turns out uh, 
I, I enjoy it. Kind of goes back to the teaching question, right? I mean, mm-hmm. part of part of the reason I write the books is to help you know share what I know with others that could benefit from it. Part of it is obviously commercial because you know I like money, um, <laughs> and uh, and people keep uh, you know people keep liking it. So uh, it's just been a kind of a continuous thing. Um, multiple p- different publishers. Uh, almost all martial arts uh related i did did do one book on uh contracting because that's actually what i do for a living and i did a leadership book uh, as well but pretty much everything else has been in some way martial arts violence in society that kind of a theme very cool and i definitely want to talk about the new book because that's actually how i was introduced to you and you've mentioned chris a few times just for for the listeners former guest of the show um episode number 34 chris wilder is who you've been talking about and and who you've known for a long time and written some books with talk about the 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 brand new book the one he he talked a little bit about when he was on the show that it was coming out or or that it was being worked on but it was probably still months away from being finished so just talk a little bit about that book yeah Actually, this is honestly my very favorite book that we've done. Nice. And I didn't think it was going to be when we started. In fact, about two-thirds of the way through, I thought it was the dumbest idea we ever had because of how hard it was to put together. But it's turned out amazing. And and so what happened was over the years, we've had a lot of contracts where we said, well, that's because he or she is a martial artist or martial arts are special or, well, of course, because he or she is a martial artist. And it led to the question kind of in our minds, which we, which coalesced into the book, Martial Arts in Your Life, which is, well, what is it that makes martial artists special? What, what is it that makes them unique? In what ways are they unique? And so what we did is we had this neat idea to, to do an international survey of martial artists and kind of find out what makes them tick. And we decided to go into a lot of depth. Uh, there's 40 questions plus some uh demographics information and really understand all kinds of different aspects of people who are involved. And in the book, we basically highlight every answer uh, to every question, you know, the, the, not, not the individual's answers, but what do you learn from the question? And then interspersed amongst that, we highlight uh, some, some of the, more interesting martial artists and a little bit of their story. So not all 40 questions, just a selection of things that are important, but stuff that really helps make it, because, you know, it'd be pretty easy with a survey to turn into a bunch of dry, boring stuff. Instead, we wanted to make it really vibrant and meaningful and, and have it connect with people. And so interspersing between the various questions, uh, highlights of some of the individuals who responded to the survey, you get a really uh, holistic and interesting appraisal of how are martial artists similar or different than regular folks and what makes them tick, why do they care, and what can you learn from it and what can you take away from it. And it was uh, one of the findings that's not in the book is that martial artists are really bad at following instructions (laughs) and hurting them is harder than cats. (laughs) <laughs> and I will say um, it was a royal pain to pull all this stuff together, but it was simultaneously amazing and awesome. And I really appreciate all the folks who who helped out because it was not uh, an incon- you know, the, the amount of work they had to do to actually respond to everything was was a lot. And um, uh, some of the folks who who didn't respond, we gave folks the opportunity to respond uh, mm-hmm. with their name or to respond anonymously. We also had quite a few people who backed out after they started getting into the questionnaire. 
and uh, I asked him, you know, do you not have enough time or, you know, do you find it not an issue or whatever? Almost universally, it was like, I'm having too much of an emotional reaction that, that I'm having a hard time actually answering this. And I would prefer not to. Wow. And it's like, wow, uh, we must ask good questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so we let a few people off the hook. Uh, and, and, you know, there are a couple who, uh, I mean, one of them, the, the whole um, Afghanistan debacle thing happened. And uh, he went in country with a bunch of folks to to get some of the Americans out who were trapped there. So, you know, very legit reason he was, would have been happy to to do it, but you know, missed the deadlines because he was uh, doing stuff far more important than our book. Right. So, variety of reasons, but uh, ultimately, the book "Martial Arts in Your Life" answers the question of: Are martial artists different? Are they superior or better in some way? Are they worse in some way? Why do they do what they do? And if you're you're trying to get in martial arts and want to be successful, it, it gives you a path. If you're a martial arts instructor and want to better reach your students, it helps you get there. If you are in a relationship with a martial artist and want to understand why we do all this stuff that we do, it'll really be illuminating. So it's a it's a pretty interesting and and actually quite valuable. Uh, appraisal we got from from the analysis of all this stuff and i would also argue um it's got some some pretty cool takeaways like if you want to keep your kids out of trouble here's a way to do it and even what age group you should do it in um if you want to hire you know high achieving employees uh here's here's some ways to know and all kinds of stuff that we weren't honestly expecting in 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 creating it and I, and I feel bad because after my interview, Chris had actually sent me the questionnaire and I had every intention of filling it out and I'd sit down and I'd look at it and then something else would happen. I'd get another interview I had to do. And I work on three different podcasts and my regular job and my kids schedule. And finally, yeah. I'm like, I like, you know, I remember that before and I went back and looked at it and suddenly it's like, all right, that was like six months ago and the book's already published. So <laughs> I felt, I yeah, felt bad because I really, yeah, I really yeah. wanted to, I had every intention <laughs> of doing it and I felt bad for not doing it, but I'm just, I, the thing well, is, one I, thing you I, might I, do actually, um, is, is kind of take a look and, you know, when you read through it and see, well, how, how would I have answered that? And, and just this, true. You know, is this meaningful for me? Because, you know, every individual is different, right? And right. you might, you, you're probably going to see yourself in many of the answers and probably not in all of them. No, that's true. That's true. And like I said, the one thing is I, just, I say yes to too many things. <laughs> that's probably why I didn't have the time. So, which I'm sure other people can relate to. So. <laughs> Nice, oh yeah, nice. that that does happen. That does happen. I uh I learned a long time ago. This is my secret to corporate success in the corporate world: never say no, but always negotiate deadlines. <laughs> nice. That sounds like me, actually. <laughs> very, very good. Nice. <laughs> well, I've I've had uh, you know my entire career. I've worked in in sort of back office areas, so mm -hmm. things that are Same. that are not necessarily driving revenue. Although I have been on a few capture teams. And when you're in a, an overhead function, if you say no, people stop asking, yep. <laughs> you know, because like, you, you know, you're seen as, as a burden. But I've I've literally in, gosh, 35 years, I've never missed a commitment that I made uh, at work. Very and, that's impressive. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it, it's intention, though. I mean, yeah. I'm very careful about, you know, what I agree to, what I don't agree to, and when I agree to get it done. And I've put in some hellaciously long hours at times to get there so you know oh yeah i've been there uh, eight so. hour weeks are not your friend if you have them for too long but i've <laughs> I've, I've done them before um, oh, a lot same with me so i i know it, i know where you're yeah. coming from so. yeah 
Exactly. Which is another reason to do martial arts, by the way, so you don't like, you know, <laughs> kill yourself by, by sitting at a desk all day. Great point for sure. So what type of advice would you give someone who, uh, let's say a friend contacts you, they've never done martial arts before and they're just wondering, I'm thinking of getting involved. What should I look for? What, what are some tips you'd give them on what to look for and maybe some things to avoid in some schools and instructors? Yeah. Um, great question. And we actually talk about that in the book a bit. Mm-hmm. The, the thing with martial arts, like many things in life is first start off by why, right? What, what are you really looking for? Are you trying to get in shape? Are you, do you want to learn how to defend yourself? Are you interested in competition? You know, do you want to win trophies? Do you want to compete in, you know, uh, uh, an Olympic game? Like, why are you doing it? Because if you don't know why it's, it's almost impossible to be successful. And in fact, we've got some data about how many different martial arts folks have tried on average, and it's a lot. And uh, and part of that's because of either the the why changed, or they hadn't considered the why and just you know kind of went with the closest place and then decided it wasn't really fitting, mm-hmm. or uh, you know some kind of big life change happened. Those are the primary reasons. And so once you know why, then it's pretty easy to find some place. I mean, let's face it, there's a bazillion martial arts schools out there. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, it's it's amazing how big this industry actually is. And, and a lot of people don't even don't even realize it who are in it. You know, it, it's uh, obviously there's there's a variety of Olympic sports and all that sort of thing. But if you define martial arts as you know, not not just like the narrow thing of of like traditional, you know, judo, karate, jujitsu, whatever. Right. If you look at it holistically, there is just I mean, in in um, let me put it this way, traditional martial arts alone in 2018 generated four billion dollars in global revenue. Wow. Their projection for this year for just the MMA equipment market is $565 million. We're talking big freaking money, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's something that is just like a piece of the market because the actual definition of martial arts is any system or tradition of combat practice for competition, cultural heritage, spiritual development, self-defense, military or law enforcement applications. That's really big. I mean, like if you start counting military budgets in there, we're talking trillions, right? Yeah. So, you know, but the point is, why do you want to learn it? And then you can find a venue and I recommend it's we uh, no more than two and a half to three miles away from wherever you live or work, because if it's not convenient, you're not going to go. Right. Then you find the best instructor that you can who fits your your style. I mentioned a long time ago uh, in this interview about how when I started with judo, it was a bad fit. I didn't know any better because I was a kid, right? And mm-hmm. I had no idea what my learning style was. Yep. But I'm one of those people that needs to understand why before I'm really good at doing it. Some people are just good at, you know, just have the, their natural physical ability and they can can learn, you know, the way I wasn't able to because I'm not a very athletic person. So, you know, there's a variety of, of arts out there who could fit almost any need and a variety of instructors who can instructors who can meet almost any style. And you just need to pull those two things together and find, you know, the best instructor you can, who's close enough that you're going to go, who's teaching something that you find interesting. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot more uh, depth to that, but in some ways it's that simple. And, and obviously, you know, you can look at Yelp reviews or Google reviews or whatever, you know, find out a little bit about the place before you go in. You can 
visit the place and, and look and kind of tell what it's all about. I mean, if you see the windows lined with trophies, that tells you something, right? It's, it's something different than if you see a bunch of traditional, you know, Kabuto equipment or whatever along the walls. And so, you know, you can tell viscerally by what it looks like. Almost everybody will allow you to at least watch a class, uh, sometimes even participate in one if you sign a waiver for free and get a feeling of what's the instruction style like. Are, are people like they, they know what they're doing? Does it look safe? Does everybody appear to to, you know, be doing something constructive or are they wandering around lost in space? Right. right. Is it clean? Is it you know, is it um, is it done in a way that makes sense to you? Like, can you follow what they're doing, even if you don't maybe understand some of the terminology? Is it pretty clear what they're doing? So it's relatively easy between a little, you know, quick web search and and a, a short visit to say, does this look like it's worth trying? And I would strongly suggest you you don't get into a long term contract. Right. Uh, that tends to to be uh, very McDojo esque in in many instances, and oftentimes, uh, you know, when you're first starting out, you don't know if you don't like it anyway. So even even if it is great, why would you do a long term contract for something that you're trying to do a test drive on, right? True. See if it works. If it doesn't, don't feel bad because there's a lot of other ones out there. I mean, I, I, I've personally tried, you know, dozens of different arts. And the one I stuck with personally was because of the instructor, not necessarily the art. I mean, I, I actually prefer striking forms to grappling forms. That's just my natural predilections. But most martial arts have the same techniques or very similar techniques bound inside of a different strategy. So in other words, there's striking, there's grappling, there's throwing, there's, you know, joint locks, there's uh, oftentimes pressure points. They may or may not be a focus. You know, I kind of think of them personally as extra credit. You know, there's punching, there's kicking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The way you string that stuff together depends on what you're trying to do. You know, if it's the Marine Corps program, it's going to be a little different than if it's, you know, uh, um, say a judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something, mm-hmm. but they all have very similar things in terms of uh, kind of fundamentals because let's face it, human bodies only move in certain ways. They all, you know, human bodies have the same weak points that if you want to damage somebody, you're going to be attacking in some way. So, you know, you have differences between empty hand and weapons. You have, you know, different focuses and whatnot, but ultimately you're going to kind of get to a similar place if you have the right why and the and an instructor who can meet that why with an art that's you know legitimate. And and I kind of air quote legitimate because <laughs> there's a ton of them that are and a few things that are very um, true. Like really you you teach really you teach that. <laughs> <Yep>. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've I've told the story on a few to a few guests when when I lived in California in the '90s, there was a school locally that, uh, you know, he wouldn't let people come in and watch classes. He claimed it was too secret and stuff like that. But what happened? You fast forward like six months, and, and suddenly he disappeared. And what people found out was he never had a day of training in his life. He actually ordered a study at home like VHS video series of martial arts, <laughs> and he would literally in the in his office with the VCR watch the lesson three or four times, memorize it, and then that day teach it in that class, and then repeat and take all these people's money without wow. a day. Of course, nowadays it, with the internet, you could never get away with that. <laughs> no, <laughs> too easy. But I will say, I have I have seen. I mean, some really dangerous stuff. I mean, for example, um, Krav Maga is a very legit, real. Art, right. Yes. There are multiple yep. forms of it, lineages or whatever you want to call it. But some of the things that is taught in at least one of the forms 
is teaching you to go to jail because you're basically disarming somebody and killing with them with their own weapon. Wow. That's yeah. really wonderful in a war <laughs> as a yeah. civilian. That is not a good thing. <laughs> and uh, because you can pretty much guarantee that whatever you do nowadays, somebody's got a cell phone camera, there's this, uh, you know, a ring doorbell or a surveillance system of some kind. And if you do stuff like take the knife away from the guy and then stab him with it, uh, you're probably just trained yourself into a jail cell <laughs> exactly. unless you got good a really, really good attorney or you happen to be in an area that there's no cell coverage or something, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, understanding it's really important if your goal is self-defense, for example, to understand the law and not just generally, because that's pretty easy. Um, intent means opportunity preclusion, right? But the specifics in the specific area you're in, so Seattle, as an example, we've had a massive crime wave after defunding the police and people are stealing catalytic converters left, right and backwards and cars and motorcycles and all kinds of stuff. And um, there was a training session I attended recently where they showed some video of people who caught the, the burglars and how they responded and whether or not it was legal. And so, for example, if uh, you happen, and it's a real example, real instance, you uh, somebody backs up a, a, a rental truck to your garage, breaks into your garage, grabs your motorcycle, rolls it out, starts to put it in the car, or in the truck, excuse me, and uh, you come out in your underwear with a gun and uh, yell at them, and they immediately drop the bike and run, can you chase after them? Can you shoot them? Can you mm -hmm. whatever, right? If you don't know the answer to that, you probably shouldn't have that gun. Right. Right. And there was a similar thing with a baseball bat and a similar thing with, yep. uh, you know, but, you know, basically the same scenario, different people, different places, same scenario uh, being repeated because there's so much sort of stuff gets on video. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, if your goal is self-defense, you need to know that thing. If you're going to, you know, if it's weapons, you need to know that thing. If it's, if it's a tournament competition, you need to know that thing. And you have to have your, your brain in the right place. I'll give you an example. So uh, in Kabuto, which is a traditional uh, Japanese and Okinawan uh, weapons form, the foot is a common target of uh, a bow staff. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with the, with the, um, uh, English, um, what they call core staff. Uh, same thing. Foot's common target because in, in a self-defense situation, you, you know, you break the guy's foot or ankle, he can't chase it, you can get away, you're fine, right? In the, the sports stuff I, I did, I was talking about the sword fighting a long time ago that I used to do, and I was, uh, among other things, I was the, the head marshal, meaning I was the guy responsible for safety of the combatants and you kind of like head judge. And so I was taking Kabuto, and at the same time, I was doing this stuff. It's right time when I just ended doing that. And so I was fighting a guy with, a, I was using a boar spear and the guy had a sword and shield. Again, tan weapons. And in the sport, it's not legal to strike below the knee. The reason it's not legal to strike below the knee isn't because that's a good target. It's because you can't adequately armor it. And if you, you know, again, break somebody's foot or ankle, they'll probably never heal correctly. Right. My son, um, his last uh, uh, football game, in high school, uh, was, um, was tackled and uh, damaged both of his ankles. Mm -hmm. And even though he made it to a college team and he, you know, he uh, played for a couple of years in college, he's a, a strength and conditioning coach, you know, does just all kinds of athletic stuff. His ankles still don't work quite right, right from that one hit in high school. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty serious thing to protect your, your feet and ankles. So, you know, we were, we were fighting 
And when you kind of anybody's competed at a high level, you realize you know, when you're kind of into the zone, you don't think very much. And so I saw this movement. I saw a, an open target and I did a block, uh, pivoted and, and was about to throw this just massive downward strike. And I froze about a half an inch away from hitting him because I realized I was about to just bust his ankle. Wow. And, you know, he's wearing engineer boots, but that wouldn't have done nothing to to protect him. Mm-hmm. And his eyes are like huge. And everybody's like, <laughs> you know, you hear the shock sound for it's because I'm like, I'm the guy in charge of safety. Right. Yeah. Which, among other things, is you don't strike below the knee. And I'm like going, oh, shit. Well, the reason for that is because I was simultaneously practicing Kabuto where you're supposed to strike for the feet. And so I couldn't shift my head from the competition sporting thing, which has rules, and the combative self-defense thing, which doesn't have rules. I mean, well, there are some, but it's more around the legalities, what you do than anything else, right? So, you know, from from only only above the knees a target to anything's a target. And, and that's one of the reasons I stopped doing the, the surf fighting stuff because I couldn't do that in Kabuto simultaneously because I had to stop and think and I couldn't, I couldn't just react. Mm-hmm. I had to respond, which is, takes longer, right? The right, OODA loop exactly. and all that sort of thing. Yep. No, that's great. That's a great point. So, so kind of some fun questions to wrap it up. So who, who would you put on your martial arts Mount Rushmore? <laughs> and it doesn't have to oh, be man. four. It can be. You know, it can be two, it can be three. It doesn't have to be four, but I used to ask for well, just one yeah. and no one could ever pick just one. So I switched the question around a little. <laughs> Man, that's, that's a great question. So, I mean, the first two that come to mind is Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali. Nice. There was a guy and I'm blanking on his name now who is, uh, who was in the, uh, the ancient Olympics, who is a multi-sport, just complete badass i'd have to look him up because i'm blank on his name now mm-hmm. and it bothers me but uh he was kind of the modern equivalent of you know mike tyson walking into the into the boxing ring and just destroying everybody when he was young okay so that guy might be on there which is horrible i can't remember his name <laughs> uh maybe bodhiarma Miyamoto musashi good i mean uh, that, that those are kind of you know those are the names that come to mind i'd have to really think about the okay exactly who i will tell you one of the questions we actually had in the book is 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 who's the greatest athlete of all time okay um which we didn't say martial artist but just to see kind of where people's uh, thoughts were and and if they would revert to martial arts or if they would look broader it was mm-hmm. kind of a you know kind of an interesting um it's to see the thought process of the martial artist but but that's something that uh yeah i mean those are the first ones that come to mind, you know, Misashi, because obviously, you know, greatest samurai like ever, Definitely. Uh, probably because he had a good PR department, <laughs> but, uh, but also, I mean, you know, the guy, uh, you know, he fought over 60 duels at a time when, you know, you get a little cut and it gets infected and that's your last, you know, that you're over. Yep. Uh, Bruce Lee, not necessarily because he was the best, but because he made martial arts accessible and interesting and desirable to the world. Right. Um, So just a huge influence there. Muhammad Ali, because I mean, (laughs) yeah, he was, you know, he he was amazing, (laughs) you know, so those are the top ones anyway. Good, good answers. So some, some we haven't had yet, so that's good. All right. So in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy that really stands out for you that you've learned? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, don't be there when the other guy wants to fight. Nice. I like that one. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, it's uh, actually used to teach it when I was uh, when I was teaching. I, I teach as rule number one is don't get hit. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be awareness, avoidance, de-escalation, you know, that sort of stuff. Or it can be if you've screwed up your self-defense and you actually have to fight to actually literally not get hit. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's the um, uh, I mean, all the fights I've been in and it's been a lot. Uh, only a few of them were because there was an option because most of the time it was you know, working or, or because I, I did some interesting things as a youth, like I bodyguarded strippers in private shows. Um, I made knives and, and other weapons for outlaw biker gangs. I've done some interesting stuff that, you know, <laughs> nice. every so often I was in the right place at the wrong time. Yeah. But other than like when college, when we used to go to hockey games so we could pick fights cause it was fun and we were dumb enough to realize to not realize, excuse me, the impact of, of doing that. Pretty much everything I've done was either because I was working or I had literally no choice. Okay. And so I think it boils down to, uh, you know, if you, if you want to be safe, don't be there. I like that. Okay. Now this one, you, you can't, obviously can't pick one of yours favorite martial arts book. That's a good one too. Um, especially when I can't pick one of mine. Um, <laughs> hey, one of my, one of my guests actually did pick one of Chris's books one time. So that was cool. Nice. <laughs> yep. Although most of Chris's books are probably mine as well. So exactly. um, I, I think I would probably go to uh, Lauren Christensen and um, she actually has uh, two, two books or solo training, solo training too. I was a contributing author to the second one. So if that, if that blows that one, doesn't count. There's still two of them. And the reason I really like solo training is because first off, Lauren is just an amazing guy. Uh, just great dude. Um, he helped me out a ton when I started writing, um, you know, I've taken classes from him and, and we trained together a little bit, you know, he just, just phenomenal. Um, and, and that's without, uh, you know, he was, he was, um, uh, listed as the 13th most dangerous man in the world, according to Black Belt Magazine, which wow. we've given him a ration for ever since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure he's quite embarrassed by that, but <laughs> he was a martial arts master's Hall of Fame member. I mean, just amazing guy. Nice. The reason I really like solo training is because it shows you, you don't have to go to class. You don't have to, you know, like you, you can do things and train a little bit every day, all day, everywhere, and, and the journey never stops. And it gives you all these just tips and tricks and things that you can do with and without, you know, like a body opponent bag or other equipment nice. um, to just constantly be honing and 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 learning and growing and, and doing more and more. And so I, I think that's a, that's a great resource. Very cool. I will have to. Ch- I've never heard of that one. So I'll have to check that one out. So. Pretty much anything he wrote is good, to be honest. But okay. yeah, that's one of my favorites of his. Cool. Now, this one, not all my guests have an answer for. It kind of depends on and how you grew up. But do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Are you ever a gamer? Oh, um, a little bit. Okay. Uh, I would have to say Mortal Kombat because uh, nice. I did most of my gaming like in the 80s and 90s. So, yep. you know, that was like you actually put quarters in machine. There was no Xbox back then. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually always enjoyed that. And then when they made the movies about it, I got really excited and <laughs> tell the second one, in which case I wanted to kill the the guys who wrote that. Yeah. Uh, but it was total redemption with the newest one. Yeah. So newest one was good. Know, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. In fact, um I, I loved the um Scorpion that I can't remember the actor's name, but yeah. that was just awesome yeah the, the, when the original one came out i actually met a few of those guys from the original movie at a tournament in, in minnesota back in the early 90s nice. so that was kind of cool <laughs> okay that right. is cool yeah. very cool yeah 
Well, I've, I have, um, I have been, uh, uh, I've met all kinds of people who I, who are, you know, like, like Dan Anderson and Warren mm-hmm. Christensen and uh, Ian Abernathy, Chris, and nice. all these, these luminaries and stuff. I've never met Chuck Norris and I've always wanted to. He's on my list. I found out one time that I, I blew my chance to meet him. Uh, I actually was a, a tournament in Minneapolis called the diamond nationals that I, I used, I went to like every year, you know, just to watch the tournament, not even compete. Uh, and, and one year I skipped it and that was the year Chuck Norris came. And that was the year. Like, uh, you gotta be kidding me. Like, oh, that's you. Well, he was, um, there was, um, a, a guy named Tim that, that was one of Chris's students who, who had, um, uh, a fatal illness and the, the adult version to make a wish. And I can't remember what they call that. He, uh, he asked to meet Chuck Norris and they flew him down, brought him to the set of Walker, Texas Rangers. It's back when he was stopped to be filming. Chuck spent like most of, of, a he was down there for two days. He spent like most of that time with him. I mean, wow. you know, he obviously he was doing his, his filming and everything mm-hmm. as well. But gave Tim a um, uh, one of the the crew jackets, you know, from the thing that you know says Walker Texas Ranger on the back of it and all that, and that's, that's cool. what Tim was buried in. Wow. Um, so I mean, that was just like you know, I mean, I've always thought Chuck Norris was an amazing martial artist yeah. and, and a great actor, but just his character and willingness to do something like that when he's that busy, mm-hmm. I thought was just fantastic. And so you know. He's one of my dream guests. Fingers crossed I can make it happen, but there you go. Yeah. We'll see. So, all right. That would be, that would be cool. (laughs) That'd be fun. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show. Favorite martial arts TV show. Hmm. Wow. There's so many. Um, Hmm. I think I'm going to, I'll do a slight uh, left turn on that one. I'll say Highlander. Nice. Very cool. So I actually got to interview Adrian Paul on my show. So yeah, I was nice. That was a huge, huge honor to have him. And I loved that show. Such a, I mean, I was a huge fan yeah. of the movie and I actually think I liked the TV series better than the movie. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. I actually liked the, the I liked the movie, the first one, Yes, but I, but I really liked the TV show. I thought it was, was way better uh, in a lot of ways, but you know, a well-written TV show, you can get so much more depth of character than you can in yes. a movie. Yep. So, you know, all right. Favorite martial arts movie. Favorite martial arts movie. Hmm. Wow. Again, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to go with enter the dragon. Classic. Nice. Okay. Classic. Well, part of it is because that's what really got me excited. You know, judo I was doing cause I was kind of told to go there. Right. Yeah, yep. uh, and then I started liking it, but enter the dragon just got me excited about martial arts. In fact, I bought a pair of Nichaku sticks of which uh, are responsible for one of my eight concussions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, it was just, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's the, the class, it's the classic that you can watch like again and again. And, and you, you can, you notice that, you know, the cinematography and, and, and the, you know, the quality and everything is not like a modern movie, right? but it doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah. It's still, it's, it still holds up. It's still fun to watch. I still watch that at least once a year too. So <laughs> nice. Exactly. All right. Final question. This one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, but do you have a favorite movie fight scene? Ooh. Um, I'm I'm kind of liking uh, Ray Park, uh, you know Darth Maul. In, in, nice. Uh, I didn't particularly like the that movie all that mm-hmm. much. Yeah. But that fight scene was awesome. That one hasn't been picked yet. I like that answer. <laughs> yeah, it was just. It, I mean, it's just. It's so. You know, just just the whole you know good and evil thing. Mm-hmm. That you know the staff versus the swords. The 
I mean, it was just well done and, and just, a, it's just a fun scene. Yeah. I like that answer. That's I'm not, I'm not going to rewatch Plus it's pretty, the story behind how he ended up being able to play the character is pretty cool too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah, and he, he played it so well. Oh yes, he did. Yeah. Another guy who I, I wish I'd met and didn't, which actually is almost like yours. He was actually at a conference um, one year <laughs> that I chose to not go. So, okay. Uh, I could have met him, but I didn't because yep. I didn't know he's going to be there. Well, maybe next time. <laughs> like you said, we, yeah. there's still a chance. Who knows? Who knows? So yeah, that's true. It's possible. Nice. It's nice. possible. So anything else that I, you want to mention before, before we wrap it up here, anything we, we haven't, uh, I'll, about? I'll give you uh I'll give you a second on, on movies. Just, okay. Just as a collective, I, I love the John Wick movies, especially oh, yeah. the one that Mark Dacascos is in. Yeah. I love Mark. That, that's <laughs> just, Oh yeah, me too. Um, that, that's just, Yeah. That was just too cool. I'm I'm a huge fan of Only the Strong, so that's one of one of my favorites. That's one of my go tos when I'm oh yeah when I'm bored and just want to watch something I've seen a hundred times. I'll I'll pop that that yeah, one that absolutely. one that one the Karate Kid Bloodsport and Perfect Weapon are probably the four that I've yeah. watched more than any other. Movies. Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, I'm a I'm a bit of a foodie as well, so I actually I actually like Mark when he was the chairman in Iron Chef America as well. So. Okay. You know, I, I got a little little cross cultural thing and mm-hmm. in being a fanboy of his. So, Lawrence, I just, I just want to say thank you, man. This this has been a lot of fun. I I love hearing your story, and I, I'm looking forward to to definitely getting the book. I'll have to actually have an Amazon gift card burning a hole in my pocket, so I, I know what I'm going to be doing oh, now. So, well, it's uh <laughs> it's available in ebook and soft cover and hardback, and the hardback not only is it sturdy enough to make good body armor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I spent $148 to send a copy, a signed copy of that to a guy in Australia. I had no idea wow. how expensive it is to ship stuff. So do that free Amazon shipping. <laughs> it's good. But yeah, they, uh, I actually like the, 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 the soft cover looks good, but I think the hard cover is just awesome. Okay. Just the way it, it just turned out really nice. So if you, um, if you're willing to pay a little extra, uh, and I actually make less money in the hard covers, by the way, than oh, I do on the soft cover. Okay. I just think it's a better book cool, in terms cool. of the, you know, they just did a really great job on the printing. Nice. Cool. Well, I will check it out. And when the, when the episode's ready, I will I'll send you links and I'll put links for, for you guys' books and everything else in there. So, well, thanks, sir. Appreciate it. It's awesome talking with you. And, uh, I can see why uh, why you did radio for as long as you did. You got that kind of radio voice and good interviewer thing going on, so I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.